0: Check, 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 check. (coughs) Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to One Hope Church again. It's good to see everybody. Um, And it's good to see everybody, even though we're quite few in numbers this morning. But we will pray that the Lord will work in the time that we have. Uh, So I'm not Chet. I'm not Michael. Michael is leading worship, and here I am going to be leading the message, which is definitely out of the ordinary. Why are we choosing to do that? Chet's sitting right here. He could teach. I normally... Uh, help lead worship on uh, by singing. Why, are we, why do we switch things up? What's the point in that? Well, one of the main reasons we do that is because we believe in the priesthood of all believers. The church doesn't have, our local church here doesn't have uh, authority over everything. Christ has authority over everything. And we want to be under shepherds. We want to be looking to Him. So we do this on purpose, not because I'm the most talented teacher by a long stretch. We've got more than one that is more talented than I but the Lord is gracious and the Lord's Word is what works in our lives and changes us. So hopefully this morning as we look into His Word um, and as we, um, as we are led by the Spirit, I pray that the Spirit of the Lord would change our hearts and make us more like Christ this morning. So before we start, uh, before I pray, uh, what we're going to do is actually read uh, the section of Scripture that we'll be working with today. It's going to be in Second Kings. We're taking a break from Corinthians this week uh, since we knew we would be smaller in numbers. We didn't want the vast majority of people to to miss the teaching that we've been going through. Uh, So it's going to be kind of an aside this morning, um, and I just pray that it would be used by the Lord for our benefit and for His glory. So we're going to be in 2 Kings. Uh, Our primary text is going to be chapter 7, verses 3 through 11. Before we read that section, I'm going to read some of the previous verses so we know what's going on to kind of set the stage. Um, this is a very dark moment in the history of uh, of Israel. A very rough situation is putting it mildly. They are in a desperate situation. Um, and this is during the time of the prophet Elisha. We're looking at mid-800 uh, B.C. If you would read with me 2 Kings, and we're going to be chapter 6. Let's start with verse 24 to get some context. And it happened... After this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. What does that mean? Things that were previously seen as unedible were now... Worth, you could buy a donkey's head for what you could have bought a fleet of live donkeys for before this. this was, they were in such a desperate situation that uh, it threw everything off. It is that type of situation. Then the king of Israel was passing on the wall, and a woman cried out to him, saying, Help me, O Lord, my king. Uh, and he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the, flesh, the threshing floor or from the wine press. And the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Now it happened when the king heard these words of the woman. He tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body, and he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take, off my, take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door it is not the sound of is it not the sound of his master's feet behind him and while he was still uh, talk, uh, talking with him there was the messenger coming down to him and the king said surely this calamity is from the lord why should i wait for the lord any longer then elisha said hear the word of the lord thus says the lord tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of samaria so an officer whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God saying, Look, if the Lord would make the windows of, of in heaven, how could this thing be? More or less, if he was to pour out manna from heaven, how could this be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for this time that we have to look into your word. And we see this uh, situation here that's, before us, that looks hopeless for Israel. Uh, we see all through the Old Testament how you, how you save your people. Um, if it wasn't for you, they would never have come out of Egypt. If, if you hadn't saved them so many times, there would not be, they would not even be a people group. Uh, so they owe that to you. And here's another situation where you come and where you save them miraculously. And Lord, I just pray that you would use this time to teach us a little bit about your heart and what you desire for us um, and I pray like the psalmist that the words of my mouth, meditation, and my heart would be pleasing in your, so, your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I just pray that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on you, that you would use your word to shape us and mold us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Uh, desperation will lead people to do things they would not otherwise do. What's going on is a siege. There's the city and all the inhabitants that might live on the outskirts of town. Everybody's in within the city walls. And they're sitting in there, surrounded by an army. They can't go out and get food. They can't do anything else. They've been sitting there for who knows how long, and they have no food. And they're dying off one by one. They're starving to death. And people start doing these horrible things that we read here. Um, and and the first thought when I read, we read some of these things like this in the Old Testament, be like, well, if that was, you know, in more modern times, stuff like this would never happen. That's just not possible. Well. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about siege warfare, so I was just looking up a couple of things. The worst siege, as far as death toll, actually happened in uh, in World War II, and it was the siege of Leningrad. It's estimated the numbers are very are all over the place, but it's estimated that over 1.5 million people starved to death. And that siege lasted two years, and then intermittently they've got some goods and things in. And this was a very modern city. I mean, it would have been like one of our cities, a big city here today, completely surrounded and unable to sustain themselves. And imagine what it's like. In the, in the city of Leningrad, uh, rats disappeared because they ate them all. Birds disappeared because if something came in the air, it was, it was somebody's was eating it. And as people started dying off one by one, there was, there was at one point where over 100,000 people were dying a month. In, in that city, I mean, just imagine. And so, some of these people see, uh, you know, if somebody dies right in front of them. Your options might be eat this person or die too, which is a horrible thing to think. But even this was in our time, and uh, it was not uncommon in that city for uh, cannibalism to happen. Now, it was very the the numbers were <clears throat> lower that somebody actually murdered somebody and and took them to eat, but that did happen. And these were people that were educated very educated community. These were people that were, you know, electricians, plumbers, you know, all these types of things were doing these types of things that you would just not think a normal human being would do. And actually the high, I was reading on, I was reading, it, it was very interesting. The highest percentage of people that were involved in cannibalism were women who had children that had no previous convictions, not that they were eating their children, but women that didn't have husbands that had no way to support themselves. Which is horrible to think, but your kids are in front of you, you know. And it doesn't say in this verse that we have here that they actually killed the children to eat them. I don't know if that's supposed to be assumed. It may or it might have been they passed away and they wanted to give them kids an honorable burial, but it's like, do I survive to support my other kids? You don't know what they're going through. It's just, a, it's hard to imagine such a desperate situation. But the Lord always comes through for his people, but they're definitely losing faith. So that brings us to the verses that we're going to read uh, today that we're going to focus on. And we're going to be focusing kind of on these uh, four lepers in these next verses. This is just a really cool story. Let's go in here in chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine's in the city, we shall die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of these Syrians." If they keep us alive, we shall live. Great. If they kill us, then we shall only die. Uh, they arose, and they arose at twilight to go into the camp of the Assyrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Assyrian camp, uh, uh, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Assyrians uh, to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, And noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and they ate and drank. And they carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they uh, came back and entered another tent and carried some away there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is the day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. Amen. Now, and even at first, they don't the, the, the king doesn't believe, and the people around him don't believe. But eventually, um, God <laughs> brings salvation for everybody once they believe the account of these four guys. Imagine this, four lepers. So here's four guys that generally can't have contact with people inside the city because of their conditions, they've already had a rough life. So they went from having, you know, a rough life to now on the very the verge of starving to death. And they sit they're sitting around here wondering who's going to drop first. And they're like, all right, let's do something. So they they, they come up. They've got four possible options. If we sit here, we're dead. All right, so let's we'll scratch that one. Option number two, we can go into the city. We'll try to make it in there. Maybe they'll have mercy on us less this. Nope, if we go in there. That's where the, nobody's got any food there, and they're all dying. So we go there, we're going to die too. If we think much longer and try to make a great decision, we're going to die anyway. So that's out. Uh, so fourth option is let's stroll into the camp of the enemies that are trying to kill us and all, our, all the people here, and maybe they'll have mercy on us. They'll probably kill us, but that gives us the, the little glimmer of hope of maybe we'll survive. Uh, and so they go for it. Man, talk about a lack of options, man. That's, a, that's about as bad as it gets. Um, Ravi Zacharias tells a story about some missionary friends of his that were in Bangkok. And this this happened in, I think it was like the late 80s or early 90s. There was a couple of different missionary families that were in the same city, and there was a rampage of people that were coming in and stealing things from from people's houses, and they were coming in with knives. And generally... If somebody's coming into your house with a knife, uh, they're going for whoever the strongest person is first, killing that person and saying, who's next? I'm taking everything. Uh, and that's generally how these attacks were happening. It was kind of scary. And uh, one of the missionaries confronted a guy that came into the living room to try to protect his family. A guy came into, I think it was a kitchen with a knife, and he got into a fight with him and nearly died. Uh, cut his throat. Lost, he lost the ability to speak. He ended up getting healed. Uh, not, I don't know. He ended up surviving, but I don't think that his uh, vocal cords were ever the same. And just a horrific, terrible thing for these missionaries in Bangkok. Now, there's another family in town, and just shortly after this happened, while the guy's still in the hospital, um, this guy that's more of a diminutive man, who's not the big, strong guy like this other fellow, is laying in bed with his wife, and he hears somebody come in the house. And they're upstairs, and he hears this guy walking up the stairs. And his two little girls are in another bedroom. And he's just thinking, dear Lord, please don't let them go into that bedroom. But if they come in here, what am I going to do? He didn't have any way to defend himself. So the door opens. He sees the light behind him. He sees a guy with a knife there. And it's dark in the room. And he's walking around towards the bed. And this guy has no idea what to do. Uh, And he said that. Don't know how the Lord brought it to his mind. But the first thing somehow he thought of was when he was was doing a play where he had to be a North American Indian giving a war cry. (laughs) <laughs> so this this guy with a knife gets to the side of the, his bed, and this old practice Indian war cry, like you wouldn't believe, la, 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 I can't even imagine what it sounded like, out of the dead silence. This poor guy with a knife flips out. He runs down the stairs and jumps out a window because he doesn't know if this is a dead, you know, an animal with, with rabies sitting upstairs. What is going on? Um, yeah. So when you're out of choices, the best one tends to present itself, right? <laughs> Same, same type of situation. But this is a situation that these four guys were in. They have no good option, you know, so they're going uh, to do with what, what, they, what, what they can to survive. Then they get to this camp, and this camp is animals for the taking, food ready to eat, gold. You know, they, they've got it made. And they're, I don't know what they're thinking, but if I was thinking this, I'm thinking, man, I have leprosy. My life is stunk. How the rules are around here? I, I mean, I got no breaks. I I deserve something, you know. I would have probably grabbed some stuff and hit it into the ground too. But they have the right opinion. They, you know, they're sitting here here with gold and stuff in their arms, and they're thinking where they could hide it. Maybe they could use it later. And they're like, "Man, we're not doing right. We didn't do this. The Lord is bringing salvation. Let's be the messengers and go tell it." And which is just a, a powerful uh, picture. And they go back and tell. And, you know, this was really a test of faith for them, or a test of faithfulness, and they passed with flying colors. G.K. Chesterton uh, one, once wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. i me read that again. The, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. You know, why do we have a crisis of faith in our, our time? Because people want to live under their own standards. They don't want to be judged by an objective standard. I was reading, and I wish I could have found the article. I had read this a while back, and after our last small group, some of the things kind of tied together in my mind. So I went back to try to find this article, and I couldn't find it. But i could give you kind of the gist of it. There was an article, and I don't know how I got a link to it on Facebook or what it was, but it was written by a, a, a girl that had adopted some children, And she had talked about her reasoning for adoption being that she loved the Lord and felt led to do it. And um, there was a bunch of comments at the bottom. I generally make a point not to read comments because that's just where everything gets horrible in in any post ever. But I started, I I was looking down through the comments because some people just wrote some of the most horrible things. And it wasn't on a Christian website, so you can imagine. And then there was a kind of a dialogue emerged where these couple of people started talking to one another. One that was clearly a humanist and one that was clearly a Christian. And so they would kind of go back and forth, and I would try to ignore all the other things, but these two were almost having a, a, almost a respectful dialogue, which was kind of interesting. The humanist started out by saying, you know, you don't have to love God to try to do good things. People are generally good. People are getting better with the help of science and, and all these things. We're going to start getting better even at a more rapid pace, especially with genetics coming out, more genetic study. He was th- he's thinking the next couple thousand years, whatever makes people... Bad. we're going to start weeding these things out and people will get better and better and better and better. And the Christian was uh, was saying, man, this unit was arguing with him back and forth with these posts. And at one point the Christian said, well, that's interesting. What if He said, what if geneticists find out that there's some sort of gene that we've done well, we get, we get them better, but there's some sort of gene that keeps people from being what they need to be to be quote-unquote good. And what if 10% of the population has that? Would you be willing to to, to sacrifice those 10 and they, they kind of go back and forth, and the Christian was like, "Well, if there was fifty, you know, they they weren't seeing necessarily eye to eye." But then the guy writes at the end. The Christian says, "The the, the real problem is there's an inherent problem in all humans that science is not going to fix. It's called sin, and there's no no bit of human enge- genetic engineering is going to weed that out. That's something that we're always going to have, and there's only one fix, and that's Jesus, which is pretty powerful." The guy didn't quite get it. It didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't, and he didn't like accept the Lord right there on the on the post. But, uh, but it was very, very, very uh, powerful statement. And we were talking about in our last small group, you know, somebody was asking, "Can we are people basically good or people basically bad? What what is this?" And we it, people don't have a problem saying nobody's perfect, but people have a problem saying that maybe might not even have a problem saying people are flawed. Nobody's perfect. People are flawed, but. A lot of people that aren't believers have a hard, to, hard time saying people have a problem with sin. The reason is not being perfect and being flawed is still unobjective. When you use the S word for sin, there's an, there's an objective context for your actions. You can, your actions can be said, yes, this meets the mark or this doesn't meet the mark. Well, you know, Plenty of people say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing pretty good things. I haven't done X, Y, and Z. I'm a good person. But when you measure it up to Scripture, um, do those things measure up? And the recognition, the the problem is to, um, a recognition of spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord is the only way that we're going to be led to repentance. Um, It's not something that we're going to stumble upon. And true faith is essentially that, is, you know, throwing oneself on the mercy of the court, saying, I can't measure up. I can try to be good as much as I want to, but I can't meet um, what God's perfect standard is. I just think about, The story of Jacob, if you guys remember that, reading through Genesis, if anybody's reading the Bible through this year. Um, What a guy, man. He stole his brother's birthright, stole his brother's blessing. His brother Esau wants to kill him. He lied to his father. We're starting out with XXX. Then he runs off, but the Lord is still blessing him. It's years and years and years pass. The Lord is working things inside of him and blessing him. And then this moment of truth comes when he's going to come back and he's going to face his brother Esau. And is this guy going to kill me like he said he's going to kill me? Or, or how are we going to work this out? It's the moment of truth. And the night before this moment of truth, he ends up wrestling with God all night long. Which is a hard thing to imagine. But here he is wrestling and wrestling. And then at the end of this wrestling match, God asks one of the oddest questions in all of Scripture. Um, after, I can't imagine wrestling with somebody all night, and then the, his question is, okay, what is your name? As if maybe he'd been wrestling with the wrong person all night long, you know? Um, but that's not the, that's not the case. He, he, rightly, he rightly answers. He says, my name is Jacob. But if the last time Jacob had been asked by somebody who knew him, what is your name? He lied. His father said, who is this? And he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Jacob's very name figuratively means duplicitous or even cheat, and he fesses up before the Lord in front of him, my name is Jacob, and I think I think in a way that's him recognizing the truth about himself, and uh, And the Lord says to him that you will no longer be Jacob, but you will be known as Israel, and the Lord goes continues to bless him and fulfills his covenant through him, not because of any good or thing that Jacob has done or because he deserves it, but because of um, because of God's great love. It's just a powerful thing. Luke 14:16 uh you don't have to turn there. It's the parable of the great supper, I think which we're all uh fairly familiar with. In this parable, this man who's supposed to, that's uh representative of God asks all of his friends to come to this great banquet, and these people start making excuses, I have to do this, I have to do x, y, and z. And, uh, and the Lord gets angry and tells his servants, Go quick into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, bring in the maimed, bring in the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And in the spiritual realm, those who recognize their need for the Lord's generosity are the ones that receive it. And that's so important for us to remember. Uh, There's this uh, songwriter. We actually have some of his songs in our uh, songbook. His name's John Mark McMillan. He's a modern hymnist. One of his songs is called Carbon Ribs, and he has this line in there I just think is, is awesome and powerful. It says, I'm a dead man now with a ghost who lives in the confines of these carbon ribs. And one day when I'm free, I will sit the cripple at your table, the cripple by your side. Just the... Recognition of that we will be with the Lord for what He's done, not because of anything that we have done. Powerful line, you know. And think of the woman who washed Jesus's feet with her tears in Luke seven. You know, she walks into this room filled with Pharisees and disciples, of, and some of Jesus's disciples. She knows that everybody that that sees her coming in knows about her, knows her reputation. They, she knows they 're going to look down on her, she knows what they think about her, but she also knows the truth about herself. She knows that she 's a sinner, she knows that she needs forgiveness, and she knows that better than anybody else in that room. She walks right in there, washes jesus 's feet with her tears and anoints and anoints him. just such a powerful picture of, of brokenness before the Lord. she recognizes her spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. And while she's doing this, one of the guys thinks, "Man, if Jesus knew what type of person this was, he would not be okay with this." And Jesus responds to this person, uh, uh, Simon. He answered him and says, "I suppose uh, well, he tells us this story of two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii. One owed fifty. They were both forgiven. Which one uh, would love the master more?" Simon answers correctly. "I suppose the one whom forgave more." And Jesus said to him. You have rightly judged. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water from my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her the hair on her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in, in our bankruptcy, we come to him for cleaning. Um, you know, all of us that know the Lord have a similar story of that time when we realized, Man, I can't measure up. I just can't do it. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. Just a portion of it, anyway, and something that the Lord used to put me back on track. I, I came to know the Lord when I was very young, but um, I've, I've had up down up times and down times. When I was when I was nineteen, right out of high school, um, had a lot of friends, uh, and most of my friends didn't know the Lord. And you know, I decided that I wanted to judge myself. Uh, I wanted to have my own standard. Like some things are going to be acceptable for me to do, some things aren't. I'm always going to go to church and be a pretty decent person, so people will look at me and say, "Well, this guy's not a bad guy. He's always in church. I'm never going to do drugs. You know, most likely never get drunk if I can help it." That makes me pretty really. That makes me, that puts me in the top what 80 percent of human beings in the United States. No drugs. You know, not drinking. But you know, if I want to watch pornography, I'll go ahead and do that. You know, but I'm not going to tell anybody about that. That'll just be you know to me. And I've got a girlfriend who's willing to do whatever I want. Um, we'll draw a line where we're not that bad, but we're going to do everything else. And um, and so I kind of, I wanted to have my own standards and live that way. And for a period of time, I did. And man, what a miserable time. You know, sin's a lot of fun for like five seconds, but when it's not, you know, when you know the truth about eternity and you know the truth about the one who shed his blood for you, man, it doesn't last long. It does not last long. And, um, and also, you know, having a good time but not mattering whatsoever. It, it, I was a man without a mission, which is a slow death in and of itself, you know. And one day I was just so sick of it, I actually opened my Bible for the first time in, in months, other than being at church, and I've turned right to Luke chapter 9. Um, and I really think, the, you, know, I, you know, I don't know that the Lord does that every time. I've, op- I've opened the Bible in times of need and... <laughs> come to some bagats before, you know. But uh, this time, this time I, really, I really feel like the Lord put this right here for me to read at that time I was in, when I was 19. Uh, he said to them all, this is uh, verse 23 of chapter 9. He said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit... Is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? And I read that, and I was like, "Man, I've got a decision to make right, right here and now." And thankfully, you know, through the Lord's generosity and leading, um, I was able, I accepted that grace and that forgiveness, and He really—I mean—dramatically changed my life. And where, if I mean, if that day hadn't happened, if the Lord hadn't worked on me the way He was, I don't know where I'd be today. I really don't. I probably wouldn't be here in Athens, Georgia, but um, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just amazing, and I'm so grateful for that. A couple nights ago, though, well, this last week, uh, I was doing some thinking in the shower, which is my favorite place to think, <laughs> and I was thinking about these verses, um, and uh, I, I hadn't necessarily planned to to, talk, to to mention these today, but I was sitting here thinking about them, and I, hadn't, I haven't really dug into those verses in a while and read them for a while, but, you know, it just kind of came alive to me again, even when I was just sitting here and thinking about him. You know, what Jesus says to these people is just absolutely, what he says in this verse is just absolutely amazing. Because um, he tells the people listening, if anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself. I mean, what, and that's a weird phrase. Nobody talks about denying themselves. I mean, he could have he said today, you go ahead and look in the mirror, look at yourself, and you say, no, no self. Now, nobody does, I mean, he does that. What I want, no and on top of that, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, the cross is a horrible thing that people were killed on. It was a tool of execution, and he's asking people to carry it with him. This is before he even goes to die on the cross. And that would be a weird thing today for somebody to say to somebody, because uh, we don't use crosses or have seen crosses even in movies other than about Christ. But imagine, I mean, imagine if, somebody, if, you know, if you're saying, follow me, look in that mirror, say no, Go ahead every morning. Take a, a noose, tie it real tight. Put it around your neck. Slip it on, and go out for the day and follow me. You know that's that's pretty powerful. And I wore a tie today on purpose. I don't always wear ties, but when I do, <laughs> sorry. But um, yeah, but when I do, I think of them as a noose. Now I was thinking. I was thinking about and after after thinking about that that day, I wear a tie to work every day. And when I've been tying, I've been thinking in the morning just figuratively when I'm tightening it up. Am I wearing my death on my body every day so that Christ may be alive in me? Is that even a thought of mine in the morning? And so if you're a guy that wears a tie every day, I hope every time for the rest of your life when you tie a tie, you just think of a noose and think, am I dead to myself today and living for Christ? Uh, it's just it's just a picture, but maybe something that will help us in our in our, in our daily walk. But what what a powerful thing! Because our culture says, "Say yes to yourself, do what feels good." It doesn't say, "Say no to yourself and do something that's not natural." That you know, follow your dreams, follow your ambitions. Now, and Jesus says, "For what profit is a man to gain the whole world? Follow your dreams, make it to the NBA, do all these things, lose everything. Absolutely meant nothing. Meant nothing. I mean, this is the Absolute opposite of what the world teaches. There's no Nike slogan that says deny yourself. No, it's deny. It's deny the other guy that's shooting the ball. You know what I mean? There's no, there. Yeah, 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 You don't you don't see any slogans like that. Like I ain't got the right stuff. You know, like it's, you know, it's it's the absolute opposite. You're good enough. You can do it. Just follow your dreams. You know, go for it. No, no, no. If we want to actually succeed, and Jesus offers more than just salvation. I mean, He offers. Victory. He offers all these things that you know. Nike victory, yes, through Jesus Christ, not through anything that I can do. And we're going to gain the whole, gain so much through Christ that we don't even understand that yet. We'll come back to that in a second. Malcolm Muggeridge once wrote, "I can say that I never knew what joy was." until I gave it up pursuing happiness. I'm to read that again. I never knew what joy was until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I'm beholden to Jesus. Last week, we saw, sung a song, and the words are very simple in the verse, but it says, Oh, perfect serenity, you brought my life into your peace. Perfect serenity, when there's more of you and less of me. And for those of us that know Christ and have followed closely and have, have had His grace, we know that feeling of being in the right place when we're in Christ. Um, but getting back to our story and getting back to our, our four friends here that were lepers. So here they are standing in the field holding all this stuff, arms full of gold. They've already eaten. And they say, all right, it's time to go back and tell everybody. We're not doing right. Man, what a picture Um, you know, faithfulness will lead us to share the wealth that we have in Christ. Uh, That's not, this is before Christ comes, but we need to have faith and be faithful. When we're plugged into Jesus and doing things uh, through his power, our faithfulness will lead us to share. These people know in their heart that they've got all this stuff and this is what God has done. They need to go and tell it. Realistically, man, we are standing in wealth if we are in Christ. We have, what we're going to have for eternity what we've been forgiven, what we, the joy and the life that we can have here, and even much more in the future. We have so much more than we're gonna, that we can even comprehend. We've got that in our hands, and if we don't tell anybody, we're just sitting there. There's a dying world that doesn't know that Jesus is paid for. Those sins have, have been paid for, and we're not even going and telling, Jesus, telling you know, the good news of what has happened. Man, that should be, that should be a motivator. Um, knowing that God has offered salvation for everybody in this neighborhood. He's won the war. The battle's done. The enemy's scattered. It is won. All we have to do is go and tell people. And just like in this, maybe they're not going to believe us at first, but it's still the truth and we need to let them know, you know. Very powerful. Another quote here from Malcolm Muggeridge. Man, I, was, I, I, got, I got on the brainyquote.com and I was just like, oh, man, I've got, I've got quotes now for like the next 300 years. There's so many good ones. Um, but Malcolm Muggeridge, it says, one of the peculiar sins of the twentieth century. He, was, he wrote uh, a while back, which we've developed, is a very uh, to a very high uh, level of sin is credulity, and he writes this: "It has been said that when human beings stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. The truth is much worse; they believe in anything." I'll read that again. It has been said that when human beings stop believing in God. They believe in, in nothing. The truth is much worse. They believe in anything. And if we just look at our world today, what is being taught in the university, what there's so many different churches. People will believe in just about every, anything, whether that be themselves, whether that be in chance, whether that be in Buddha, Muhammad, Allah. There's so many different things that people are believing in, even, you know, and most of Americans are believing in themselves, whether or not they admit it. Um, and have fallen for these lies when we hold the truth and we need to tell. We owe it to our Lord to tell them the truth, and we owe it to our fellow human beings to tell them the truth. Um, what was it uh, 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 Mr. Nelson said recently that was just so powerful? He, I think he said, uh, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Man, that is that is witnessing in a nutshell. The The battle's been won. The bread has been provided. We know where to get it. And that's all, that's all we are, is one beggar telling another beggar how to, how to find bread. And uh, that should be, should be our attitude. Uh, I'm just going to uh, wind down here with one last story. And it's actually a story about my grandfather. His name was Bill Fisher, and he was a believer. He uh, grew, grew up in the mountains of Virginia, worked on a farm, did all kinds of manual labor for most of his life. And he was one of those quiet types of guys that just doesn't say anything, hardly ever at all, you know. And um, my mom said that growing up, you know, they prayed before every meal, but it was always kind of some rote prayer. They would pray before bed. It was rather rote prayer, but he would always be, you know, off listening in another room to, to she would catch him reading his Bible or off in another room listening to a sermon. Uh, but not to say that that was right. That's just, that's just, that's kind of his nature and how he was. Not that he was perfect by any stretch. But in his in his later years, he took care of my grandmother. She came down with cancer, and her cancer ebbed and flowed where it went into remission. She, he was there with her for that. It came back, was remission a couple of times. And, I mean, over a course of almost 10 years in their 70s and 80s, um, he was there for her every day, always taking care of her. Um, and it was, you know, a very sad thing for him to see. I can't imagine seeing my wife just body ravaged, you know, after so many years and kids and just how much life has been living together. Just to see her going through that, what that must have done to him on the inside, I just can't imagine. But my mom told me a story uh, about about something that happened with him. Uh, my grandmother, it was, she had come to her, to the end. The doctors pretty much told her that this was it. There's nothing else that we can do do for her at this point, and it's just a matter of time. And so uh, family from all over the country went to Virginia to say goodbye for the last time. She was only around for about two weeks after they had said that. And my mom went up and stayed with him the whole time to help my granddad. And I had aunts and stuff that were lo- that were close by that always helped him out. But uh, they were, actually, my grandfather was with my grandmother when she passed, and it was very, very obviously very sad. Um, my mom took him back to his house. My aunt was tired, so she went home. And my mom... Took my grandfather back to his house and helped him get ready for bed. He was well into his eighties at this point, and was already a little bit of dementia was setting in, but he knew what was going on still. And um, so, at some times of the day, he was kind of off where he couldn't understand what's going on. Other times, he was very present. And even and at this point, she'd said she hadn't heard him pray in a long time, and some of that was because he was just talking a lot less in general. You know, he wasn't saying a whole lot. And so, this was the night that his you know his wife had passed. He goes into he goes into his room. Um, he, my mom helps him get ready for bed. And my mom said she's never seen him actually physically kneel down. And this old man gets down on it and he's a tall guy. He was like six, four, man. I did not get those jeans or six, three, I think <laughs> definitely got all my dad's side, but he gets down here on his knees and leans over, uh, leans over the bed. And he prayed and he, he said very simply, he said, thank you, Lord, for all the years that you gave us together. Please look after my hazel until I can see her again. Amen. And then, and, uh, as simple as that, and my mom said I'd never heard anything like that from him. And he, she, my she, she, was losing it, and then he couldn't get back up, so she had to help him get back up, help him get in bed. Said that he rolled over and um, he was he was crying, you know, and then and then she came back and checked on him about fifteen minutes, and he was already asleep. It's like man, that's that's amazing. Now a story like that, you know, to the intellectual may seem like pure romanticism, but if. If Scripture is correct, like we believe it's correct, First Corinthians two nine says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That being true, both my grandparents are believers, they're in a place that what's going on there is something that our human language can't even make us comprehend in our current in our current context. You know, we don't even we can't even understand fully, and we won't until we see it, what it is that God has prepared for us. And there's so many people out there that need to know, and we need to be those messengers. In our verses here in 2 Kings uh, that we read tonight, you know, the, the king didn't save the people. A sword and an army didn't come and save the people. Even those four lepers, they went and told the good news. They didn't save the people. God saved the people and he's saved us, and he's still saving people today. And we need to be those beggars telling other be- beggars where to f- find bread. So you know, the, the, just briefly, the points that I kind of made uh, were you know, desperation, recognition, faithfulness. Desperation will lead people to do things they would not otherwise do, for bad and for good. We need to be desperate for the Lord. Recognition, we need to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. That's the, Lord, that's the place where the Lord can really change us and work on our hearts faithfulness uh, faithfulness will lead us to share the wealth of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. And just the, the fact that we look at this world and we see um, how it's been ravaged by evil. We see horrible things every day that break our hearts and break your heart. And the good news is that the war has been won and Lord, I just pray that you would give us strength and that you would give us wisdom um, in how to how to tell other people the good news. And Lord, we are weak and we need your grace. But we thank you that you were always faithful. And we thank you so much for um, we thank you so much for pursuing us and for never letting us go. And Lord, I thank you for working on my heart, even when I was 19, even after I professed faith in you, but I was just doing what I wanted to do. You could have let me sit in my junk, but you you came after me even then. And I just thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And I don't know where everybody is at in this room today. I don't know what their struggles are. I don't know what uh, where their victories are. You know everything, though, Lord. You know every you know every sin. You know every victory. You know our weak points. You know our strong points. And Lord, I just pray if there's anybody that's in here that was like me that knows the truth but is 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 not not living it, living to make, trying to make their own kingdoms enjoy their life and trying to somehow mesh that grossly with, uh, with being a good person and being a Christian. Lord, I just pray that you, would, that you would shine light into that situation and that you would convict those people and that they would turn to you and that you would give them their, your, the true joy that we can only have through Christ. And I just pray if there's anybody in that situation that you would fix that. or if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that today would be the day that they bow their knees, that they would repent and say that you're right. And Lord, I just thank you so much again for your goodness. The battle's won. The, the war is done. Um, I just pray that we would be your hands and your feet, and we need your strength because we're weak in and of ourselves, and we can't do it without you. But we thank you for your goodness and for your love and for never giving up on your people. You didn't do it then, and you're not doing it now. And Lord, I just thank you for your love. Pray that the rest of the time that we have, that our hearts would be fixed on you, and that you would work in our hearts as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.